You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. As I was gearing up for today's show, I was thinking about the first time that I contributed to a crowdfunding campaign. I certainly didn't do it for any charitable reasons, actually. I did it because I wanted a product. I saw that a guy was launching a new armband to put your iPhone in when you run. And I've had many of these armbands, many of which have given me trouble because the Velcro just seems to die because of all the sweat, which tells you more about me and my running than you probably need to know. But I, I saw this guy who was doing one without Velcro. It looked like it was kind of cool and interesting. So I, I kicked in, I don't even remember, probably 30 bucks to his Kickstarter campaign, which actually did get fully funded. And I got an armband as a result. And it was fun to feel as if you were part of the creation of something. And that is just a teeny tiny dip in the water when it comes to crowdfunding. I was telling Kelly as we prepped for this week's show that my husband's cousin, unfortunately, is very ill and he had run a restaurant in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and all of the other restaurateurs got together and did a crowdfunding campaign and raised a huge amount of money to help support his care. So there are many different ways that crowdfunding can be used. So today we're in the studio with Alex Daly. She is a hugely successful crowdfunding expert. She's raised over $20 million for her clients' crowdfunding campaigns. Her company is called Van Alexandra. It's a creative services agency that gets projects financed through crowdfunding, and people call her the crowd sorceress, which also happens to be the title of her new book. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, I want to dive into your book and I want to dive into successful crowdfunding because I think everybody who's participated in a small way as I have have thought, well, I've got an idea, you know, this would be perfect. But before you got into this, you you wore a lot of different hats. You were a producer, you were a production manager, you made films that went to Sundance and Tribeca. You were a fact checker, which I hope is a badge that you wear very proudly because I was a fact checker. Oh, wow. Yes. Two fact checkers in the room. <laughs> I know. I was, I was, you were at New York Magazine. Yes. I was at Forbes Magazine. Oh, wow. And I'm wondering, when did you realize that you had skills to raise money? Well, it was a very unconventional journey to get here. I was a fact checker and I then decided I I thought I wanted to be a journalist, a writer and sort of I feel like the the way to get there is to start with fact checking. Um, And then I became the sole fact checker at the Wall Street Journal magazine at the young, a very young age, I think in 
my early 20s. And I was also writing on the side. And um, I realized I didn't want to be a writer. I had thought going into college, going through college is what I wanted to do. I was a philosophy major, a Spanish major, so I was writing all the time. And I turned to a mentor of mine who was a writer, and I said, I don't think I want to be a journalist or an editor or fact checker. And she said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, I minored in film in college, and I really like films. And she says, why don't you try documentary film? Because it's it's journalism and it's film combined. Smart mentor. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> she knew somebody at a production company. She introduced me, and there was a production manager job open. And I went in. And I didn't know anything about production. I didn't even know what the word post-production meant, but I sort of just like smiled my way through the interview and I got the job and I was doing a ton of grant writing there. So we were probably pushing out grants for films, you know, several at a time. And um, it's a grueling process writing grants. It is. To follow the word count and, you know, it's you submit it in six months later, you might get accepted, you probably won't get that funding. And so I was doing that for about a year. And a filmmaker at the production company I was at came up to me. And he said, I'm, I'm making a film and I need I need money for it. And I said, Oh, do you want me to do a grant for you? And he says, No, I want to do Kickstarter. And I said, What's that? <laughs> And so I I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's that thing on the Internet where you can raise money from people online. And he said, yeah, that's it. And I said, let's try it. And so we did it for his documentary. Um, I had to Google how to do a press release. I had to, we, did, we learned everything from scratch, but it was very successful. We raised $80,000 of the $50,000 goal. And then for my production company, I ran a campaign that was successful. And then one day... Some months later, a woman called me and says, I heard you're the person that knows how to raise money for documentaries through Kickstarter. And I was like, I guess I am. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did that one. That one was successful. So I started freelance crowdfunding management like on my nights and weekends. For people who are not really familiar with crowdfunding, let's just define it a little bit. Talk about the different types of crowdfunding that exist. Sure. So I primarily work with Kickstarter, sometimes Indiegogo. um, And those are platforms to raise money for creative projects online. So that can be if you need to finish a film, if you want to publish a book, if you want to make a, a gadget like, you know, a uh, running tool that you can attach to your arm like you did for that campaign. And basically, people have an idea. They put it on this website and they say, I need this much money to make it happen. You make a video for it, a beautiful page, and you have some rewards and people donate money. They get rewards in return. And that is sort of how you can get to the goal. So that's rewards-based crowdfunding. Um, recently, there has been n- this new model of equity crowdfunding, which is still in the process of getting approved, um, but some platforms are experimenting with it so that you give money and actually get a piece of the company in return. We work only with rewards-based crowdfunding, uh, but those are the Reward space is basically the big one. And donation as well. Yes, exactly. And those are sort of interchangeable. Um, a lot of the platforms that categorize themselves as donation-based crowdfunding, they have a rewards option so that you always get something in return for your donation. It's become a huge industry. It's crazy. It's 5.5 
billion dollars, and that's not counting what's going on in the equity markets. Exactly. So, as you entered this and realized that you were good at it, what does it actually take to be good at this? To put an idea out there and get it funded, because most campaigns don't get funded, correct? A majority of them fail. So there are a few factors that I think lead to a successful campaign. And the number one thing, when people you know email us or call us, show up to our door to um, raise money for them, I say, do you have a crowd of people interested in this? Because the crowd and crowdfunding is probably the most vital part of the project. If you launch this thing and nobody's there to donate to it, it's going to flatline in a second. But if you have a mailing list, if you have press, which means you'll get eyeballs on the campaign, if you have a strong social media following of people that are very invested in what you do and believe in what you do, there's the crowd that you're looking for. I call it a built-in audience. You need that built-in audience of people that are invested in the work that you do and the projects that you do so that when you launch it, they'll show up there for you. How big a crowd do you need? It depends on the, the funding that you're trying to reach. But the second piece of that is you can have 10,000 followers and not talk to them. You know, you might have all these people that follow you, but you haven't engaged them on social media for years. So it really is about having an engaged audience that you have a relationship with. That's super important. You can't just, you know, email your mailing list that you've been silent with for months. You need to be active with them and touch base with them constantly so that you don't just show up out of nowhere. So starting with at least, I say, some thousands of followers is important, but it's also like social media followers don't equal dollars. It's the active, engaged, loyal social media followers that that do. And you're known, I mean, the sorceress part of this is that you are known for getting people to open their wallets. You're you're known for getting people to actually fund campaigns. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you do that other people don't do? So I think that, you know, just being able to read if there's a crowd that's there that's willing to donate is an important part of it. But another part is the story, creating an amazing video that tells a straightforward, clear, but also beautiful story behind the what your project is, the copy on the page, the strategy of what rewards you're offering, um, and also getting all those people like a groundswell on launch day. We've learned over 50 campaigns how to do that right, how to tell the right story in, you know, a straightforward, compelling way, how to get all those people to show up on launch day. You know, it wasn't easy at the beginning. It was trial by fire (laughs) at the beginning, but we've learned what people like and what people don't like and how to get them to be there for you. So as you're, if you're a newbie at this and you're thinking, okay, I've got to make a video because clearly you've said it twice. You got to make a video. Yes. What is it that people respond to? I imagine that you have to toe a line between really telling your story in an authentic way and selling your story in what is a salesy way. Of course. Um, So just like a tip is always 
tell what say what your project is in the first 30 seconds because you're going to lose your your audience immediately. I sort of I compare it to just like just like people are swiping through crowdfunding campaigns just like everybody does with their apps on their phones. You if you get somebody's attention, you have to hold it for that first 30 seconds. So also saying exactly what it is why you're doing this, why it's important, because everybody's crowdfunding. It's such a saturated place. So why is this product so relevant right now and so important? It's sort of like you have to convince everybody that this is like the coolest, best thing on the planet right now. So there's the salesy part, Mm -hmm. but there's also an importance of like authenticity. I think that people buy in to the people selling the product. So actually be sitting down there talking about why this product is so important because your product doesn't exist. So they have to fall in love with you too. So there's selling the product and being clear and saying it up front, um, being short, you know, have a less than three minute video. Otherwise people are going to get bored, but also be in the video and, and, uh, you know, really pull at people's heartstrings and tell them why, if this project doesn't get funded, why the world will end. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's no, no small feat. We know that women have a tougher time raising money in many ways than, than men do, but I understand that this is not true when it comes to crowdfunding, that we're actually better at it. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why that is? You know, when I came across that statistic, it just it blew my mind in the best way, because I think that when women try to get venture funding, statistically, they are going to walk into a room with hardly any women. It's mostly men. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that because crowdfunding is so democratic, you know, the project speaks for itself. Anybody can use it. That just opens up the playing fields. And I think that women um, are having more success with it because they have more opportunity. They can go out there. They can sell their product to anyone. And they, you know, I just think the democracy of it really helps people buy into the person sometimes right. over the product. And I think that women, um, there is a, a high emotional intelligence that I think a lot of people buy into. And I think that's important. Are we better storytellers? I think so. I think that, the, you know, the statistics speak for itself. I think that crowdfunding is storytelling. It's telling your story in the best way possible. And I think that women do that very well. I, I want to talk about some of the, the risks involved mm-hmm. with crowdfunding. But before I go there, let me just tell everybody, remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives because we all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit Fidelity dot com slash it's time. You'll find many more conversations like this one with Alex Daly. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or getting divorced or trying to raise some money to launch your next act. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We're with Alex Daly. She is the author of the new book, The Crowd Sorceress. All right. There are risks involved in going down this road. There are also risks involved in funding projects. So talk to me about raising money first. What do you need to know as you venture down this path, including picking 
the platform that you're going to launch on. So between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which is usually the two platforms that we use, Kickstarter is all or nothing. So if you need to raise $50,000 to finish your film and in the 30-day period that you've set to raise that, if you get to 45000 on day 30, you don't see any of that. None of the credit cards are charged. While um, Indiegogo, it can be all or nothing, or you can choose to have flexible funding, which means you can walk away with that $40,000. So th- those are the two you know, main distinctions. Also, Kickstarter, they can only be creative projects, while Indiegogo, you can have a charitable project. But, but Kickstarter is very adamant about it being for creative projects. Do you have a preference? Well, we have – most of our campaigns have been on Kickstarter, I would say about – 90%. <laughs> so I think that that sort of speaks for itself. Um, we work with a lot with designers and artists and they, um, you know, I think that because they're all creative projects, they cater for that platform. You know, I think that the all or nothing rule for Kickstarter, although it's risky and so scary, I think that's how life is. Like if you need to make something happen and you need the, this amount of resources to make it happen. If you can't get all of them, you can't make the project. So, you know, if, if folks end up deciding to do Indiegogo, I actually tell them to do the fixed option. Because if you need this amount of money and you don't get all of it, then you can't actually make the product and deliver it. Um, so that's always sort of my my um, piece of advice. You didn't mention GoFundMe. Where does it oh, right. fit into the universe of platforms? So those are for charitable projects. We actually have never done a GoFundMe campaign, but I've been to the platform. It's fantastic. And it almost, they look all the same. They You can have a video. You can have copy on the page. There are perks involved too, um, but it's mostly for charities. What do you need to know if you're thinking, well, maybe I'll give this person some money? Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the risks involved in in funding a Kickstarter campaign? So the risks are, I think that people forget this about crowdfunding campaigns, that um, in the end, this is a donation. You're not buying something. And, you know, Kickstarter is very clear that their platform is not a pre-order platform. They're saying you're donating to something to bring it to life. So I think that when people, because these platforms have morphed into, you know, a way to get money so much faster and efficiently, people have started to forget that it is a donation platform and they think they're just buying something. So um, I think that going into it, they they think that they're going to give money to it and it's going to come on time when the delivery date says, but that's not how it works, you know, because people are starting these products from scratch. Some of them have never made products. So there are those risks and challenges that it may be delayed, very delayed. There are those cases, those like, I think those big disasters where they get the funding and then it's not made because they didn't budget it correctly, for example, too. So the risks are you'll get it delayed or you won't get it at all. So those are big risks, <laughs> you they, know? They they are. And especially as we venture into the equity markets, yes. which is now more and more possible, people are doing this to make an investment right. in something. So how do you think that will shake out? And how do you think it compares to buying an IPO. 
What I think is so cool about equity crowdfunding is that just like we were talking about how for women it's open the playing field, it's now you don't have to be an accredited investor. You know, what if you put in $500 and get 0.000 of a company? I don't think anybody would have expected that, you know, even 10 15 years ago, that this would even be a possibility. I think it shows the power of crowdfunding and how everything is happening online um, and that everybody can have their hands in these opportunities. You know, to play devil's advocate yes, for a yes, second, totally. the, the reason that there are all the rules around being an accredited investor, which yes. means that you have at least a million dollars in investable assets, is that they're assuming that you at least somewhat know what you're doing. Totally. And that if you lose a small amount of money in this investment, you won't go broke. Totally. And I think that the idea of, you know, having one investor versus saying 500, I wouldn't want to be that person that was, you know, having to listen to 500 people knocking on my door because they feel like they have some say in the product because they invested in it through Mm -hmm. equity crowdfunding. Um, I think on one side of it, it shows the power of what crowdfunding is and where it's gone and where how much the financial landscape has radically changed. Do I think that it's risky and it's going to be challenging and that's why it's taken this long? Yes, I do. All of those things. And I think I love rewards-based crowdfunding because it's sort of like passion economics. People are giving money almost for free. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a you get a reward in return, but you know, you're believing in something. That's why you're giving the money. And I think that that mentality changes when you think you're going to own a piece of the company. And what I love about rewards-based is that these people have passion for these products and these stories and these campaigns versus what it might be if they think they're going to get a piece of it. I remember uh, I had a young woman who was working for me a few years ago. She's now at Forbes. um, And she was so upset when Veronica Mars was canceled. So upset. And then there was a Kickstarter campaign to fund the movie. And she was right in there and on board and so excited Mm -hmm. about contributing to this effort to bring this. She just wanted to see it. You know, that's all she wanted. She didn't. She just wanted it to come to life. And I think that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. And, you know, that's the very exciting part of crowdfunding. It's scary. It's scary to put your idea out there so publicly, like you're putting a number out there and showing that this is what the value is. And if you don't hit it, then your project has people think, oh, my project has no value if you don't hit it. Right. That's very risky. You know, there's the risk of being the donor that it will be delayed or that you won't get it. But there's a lot of risk being the creator that you're, you know, not only will it fail, you fail publicly. But if you're successful, it is not only like the most inspiring, exciting feeling to have all these people behind your project. I can't describe it unless you do it. (laughs) So last question, Alex, how do you know if you're right for this? How do you, if you've got a film or if you've got a sculpture or if you've got some other artistic endeavor that you want to take on or a charitable one. Mm-hmm. How do you know if this is the way to go for you? 
You know, I, I'm such a proponent of crowdfunding. I'm telling, I tell everybody when they have a creative idea, you really should give this a try because, um, not only do you get the funding, but then you also get all these early adopters to give you feedback. Um, you know, they'll, sh- if you're making a movie, you'll know that they'll show up to that movie premiere. So there is, there is that element that you build a community as you build the funding, which I think is incredible. At the same time, I keep on going back to having that crowd to start, having a group of people that you know will back it as soon as you launch. Otherwise, if you launch and it falls flat at the beginning, you're not, I mean, this sounds negative, but you're not going to be able to pick it up after that. Um, so you have to get all your ducks in a row and make sure you have a mailing list of people that'll show up on launch day. I even say try to get 20 to 30% of your goal locked in on launch through friends and family. That you know are going to come in. Exactly. Because there's this amazing statistic on Kickstarter that if you raise 20% of your goal, you have an 80% chance of hitting it by the end. Do you have to raise it on the first day? At the beginning of it, in like that first week. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to get that crowd to back it immediately. And that can be your mailing list. That can be your your followers on social media. That can be press and getting it all lined up for day one. Otherwise, it's just way too much work and effort. You have to pay to get a video done. You have to pay someone like me. You have to just, you know, take a month off from your job to be able to run the campaign. If you don't get enough people to back it on day one, I say that maybe you need, you know, another six months to build a mailing list. That doesn't mean that you, your project can't get there. You just have to take time to build it. Alex Daly, the crowd sorceress, we will look forward to having you back. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. This was great. Thanks. And Kelly, you'll be in with your questions. Awesome. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Have you ever contributed money to a crowdfunding campaign or thought about using crowdfunding? I haven't. I really haven't. And I didn't know your armband story. Oh, yeah. I really like the idea of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. I found my mind is a little is spinning a little bit from talking to Alex because there are so many different ways that this technology can be used, although people do need to be careful. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I think it's just so interesting looking at her background into where she is now. She knows how to tell a really good story or tell someone else's story, too, which I think we can relate to with journalism, especially. So I didn't think, you know, that was the most important asset behind a successful campaign. And clearly it is. Clearly it is. Clearly it is. All right. What do we have? Susan on Facebook writes, one of my Facebook friends recently posted something very thought provoking, and I wanted to get your two cents. She challenged herself and all of us to take a closer look at what's lurking inside our 401k and other mutual fund accounts. She said she dove a bit deeper into her own and was shocked to see some holdings that very much do not align with her personal values. This feels like a very tricky challenge to me. What is your perspective on whether or not to what extent we can ensure that our investments reflect our personal and political values. So this is something, Susan, that many, many more investors, particularly women, are concerned with these days. Um, it sort of all falls under the umbrella of impact investing. And we're looking at companies that perhaps have more women on their boards or are more aligned with environmental causes or politically are more aligned with what we 
believe in. The challenge in going down this road, particularly when you hold very, very broad investments, the kind that we talk about on this show, like index funds, in order to capture the appropriate diversification, is that you may find that you do hold things that you don't really believe in. And it is possible to unwind them. But what you're asking for then is the challenge of putting together a portfolio where perhaps you're choosing more actively managed funds that are impact-oriented funds or funds that line up with your beliefs. Those may be a little more expensive than funds that are totally diversified, than index funds. You're also asking for a little bit of work, which is fine. I mean, I you want to go down this road like your friend went down this road? I totally applaud that decision. I just think you should be clear about the fact that researching stocks and researching mutual funds takes time. And in order to do it right and then rebuild a portfolio that has the proper diversification takes even more time. So yeah, I would say take a look. Why why not look under the hood, see what you own. We all should know what we own and go from there. And good luck and report back, please. Let mm-hmm. us know how it goes. Now we have an email from Lena. I just had a baby and I'm Congratulations. Wor- <laughs> and I'm worried that my goals pre-pregnancy will go by the wayside. How do I regroup and strategize with an expanding family without feeling like I will never achieve my dream or goal? Oh, Lena. Well, first of all, this is an exciting time. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a happy time and of course you are feeling pulled in a million different directions. This is what happens when we have kids. It's what happens when we get married. It's what happens when Uh, We start new businesses or, or take on a side job. We only have so much time. And your pie, to quote our friend Samantha Edis, and if you haven't listened to our show on The Pie Life, you should just go back and listen to that show. But your your pie has been rejiggered, and you need to give yourself room to sort of adjust to what those new goals and what those new timeframes may look like. Now, strictly financially, because if you're talking about the cost of a baby and babies can get expensive, I would say sit down with the numbers. Sit down with a pencil, paper, computer, financial advisor, however you want to go about it. And look at what you're trying to achieve. Look at what numbers in terms of your retirement goals, for example, your college savings goals. Look at when you're attempting to hit those benchmarks and make some adjustments if necessary in order to enable you to hit those benchmarks. And those adjustments may include giving yourself a little bit more time. So, you know, some of us look at at the date we're planning to retire and we think, ooh, 62, 65, 67, 68, they're all fine. We're all still going to be very young with a lot of energy. When you had Jake, do you remember going, holy bleep, this baby is expensive or more expensive than I thought it was going to be? Yeah, I do, although I also remember certain things not costing as much as I expected them to be. I I mean, my my sisters-in-law showed up with all these amazing hand-me-downs. So once we got past the initial furniture, I didn't buy clothes for a while. And we were just not going out as much as we were mm-hmm. before. So that money that we were spending on eating out, we, we, we were exhausted. We ate home and watched TV. <laughs> 
Our final question is an email from Eileen. She just paid off her mortgage, and she has a home equity loan plus a lot of credit card debt. Both her and her husband are on Social Security, and he's also on workers' comp, which is why she says she also had to retire. Her question, how do I decide which bills to pay off first? There's always the lowest balance or the highest interest rate. Please advise. Yep. Okay, Eileen. I am a believer in the highest interest rate, and that's because... Paying off the highest interest rate first gets you out of debt cheapest and fastest. As far as the lowest balance, getting rid of debts one by one in that way is a win. It's a psychological win. It keeps you going. But if you don't need that boost mathematically, you're best off with the highest interest rate. And just go through the process of calling your credit card companies, asking them if they will lower your interest rate. We just got yet another survey that says... Yes, card companies are willing to do this a lot more than we would ever expect. So thanks for the questions. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Jean. And just a reminder, we've got a survey up on our website at jeanchatsky.com. So if and when you send us a question, and we hope that you do, we also hope that you will just take a couple of seconds, fill out our survey, tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like about the podcast so that we can do a better job in giving you content that you want to continue to listen to. All right, moving on. Oh, Kelly, don't leave because you've got to weigh in on this one. How (laughs) many of you have ever sipped and clicked or shopped under the influence? Are you guilty? I am raising my hand. (laughs) I am. So fall of 2014, it was a year here, and I noticed that a lot of women wore sweater vests, and I really liked the look. So one evening, Friday night at home by myself, got a bottle of wine to relax, and two glasses in, I purchased seven different sweater vest varieties from J. Crew. And, <laughs> I know exactly when this was because you and I went to an event. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling you because you probably got the same sweater vest inspiration that I did. You and I went to an event and Tori Birch was wearing a sweater yes. vest. Oh my gosh, yes, right? that is right, spot on. Oh, she's fantastic, and she was dre- and it looked fantastic. It looked great. Did I ever look like that in one of my seven sweater vests? Did you no. keep all seven? I kept the majority of them, I think, because I did get them on sale. But even still, it amounted amounted to, you know, well over $100, maybe $200. And um, we're going to just start calling you Chandler. Ah, so no, I'm <laughs> totally guilty of this. And please tell me others are as well. Yeah, I've done it. Absolutely. I try if I've had a glass of wine at night, which is, you know, the norm for me um, to put things in my cart and not buy them. And that usually gets me over the urge to shop. And here's the thing. A third of Americans have shopped after drinking. And among those who drink regularly, it's often half. We know this according to a survey from Finder.com, which is a financial comparison website. And the real kicker is that the purchase price goes up. The average price tag of the purchases is 206 Dollars. As for what's in those shopping carts, most of all, it's clothes. So if this hits close to home and your wallet, here's how to sober up your spending while enjoying a glass of wine or two. Number one, pass on those shop and sip 
socials. Retailers know that you are more likely to buy with cocktails in hand and on board, so now they're serving them. Some high-end retailers are even opening on-site bars. Walk into Theory, for example. There's a good chance you'll be offered a glass of champagne if you know you're susceptible to spending more. Take a pass. Second, leave the cards at home. Thanks to our smartphones, we can shop from pretty much anywhere. If you're heading out for drinks with the girls, and you know talking about what you're coveting often leads to buying what you're coveting, just bring cash. And finally, delete the shopping apps. In that same vein, remove the apps from your phone so that it requires a little more work to get what you think. You want. Thank you for confessing, Kelly. Thank you all for listening today. A big thank you to Alex Daly for joining us on the show. Her new book, The Crowd Sorceress. Keep an eye out for that. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week. We're going to have a great discussion about making behavior changes that actually stick with Katie Milkman, a professor from the University of Pennsylvania. We will see you then. 